0: Good afternoon, everyone. The scripture reading today is from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8, verses 9 through 18. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of fathers, houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra, the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it all in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive... "'wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees "'to make booths, as it is written. "'So the people went out and brought them "'and made booths for themselves, each on his roof, "'and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, "'and in the square at the water gate, "'and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. "'And all the assembly of those who had returned "'from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. "'For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, To that day, the people of Israel had not done so, and there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly, according to the rule.
1: Let's pray. Dear Lord God, we thank you for your word. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We ask, Lord, today as we study your word, that you might show us your will and your way. That you might lead us to your love and grace. That you might propel us with your word out into our community and our city and our world. Our workplaces and our schools and our homes. Lord God, with the gospel. You know that the beginning of this chapter really began with this very unusual celebration. In chapter 8 we see that the walls have been finished. All the long toil and work of the people of Jerusalem is finally done. All the hard times and the persecution and the you know, uh, struggles within and without finally has come to fruition. The walls are done. So they have the ceremony as part of this festival and the ceremony, we would think that since the walls were done, they would have speeches and fanfare and parades and you know, or the equivalent, the ancient equivalent of those things, uh, and all of this kind of pomp and circumstance. But instead of that, we see that the people, all they wanted to do was to hear the word of God spoken. So they asked Ezra the prophet to read the word, and it would have might have looked something like this. That is the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And this is a modern rabbi opening it to read. And that's what Ezra did for for six hours, it says, in the beginning of uh, chapter 8. From 6 a.m. to noon, they stood and they listened to the Torah read by Nehemiah. And then afterwards, they had Bible studies to talk about what it meant. And we can see in the beginning of chapter 8 that that happened as instigated by the people. The people wanted it. They wanted at the beginning of their renewed life of their city to have the scriptures as the foundation of their life together. As the bond that made them stronger. As the force that compelled them together. And as we studied last week, scripture is also what keeps us together. It's our common standard. It's our, God's unique word to us that tells us who we are and who God is. And it's the lens that we see the world view, uh, the world through. So we were challenged last week to listen to the scripture as the ancient Jerusalemites did. And this week, we continue to look at the example of those in ancient Israel and Jerusalem. And we see that as they listened to God, they also responded to God. And that's what we read this week in our scripture. Now, as I was thinking about the scripture this week, I was reminded that it's good for us to know where we're going in our faith. Now, I'm not just saying heaven and hell because that's one place, you know, it's an assurance in your faith that you will meet God in heaven one day. But I'm talking about your daily life. Where is your faith leading you? Where is your faith taking you? Where, what journey does God have you on in your life? It can be hard to see that. Often when we're living our faith, it just seems like we're doing the same thing. Every week we can hit plateaus, we can hit frustrations and doubts that make us wonder, where is God leading us? What is God doing in our lives? And we need that perspective because whether we're in a hard time or a good time, a struggle or a time of peace, it is good to know where God is leading you and God is leading me and God is leading us. And we can see this journey, actually, in this passage today. This passage really kind of illustrates this gospel journey that we see through the Scriptures. And as we seek the Scriptures kind of humbly and earnestly, we see this is the journey that God leads us on to. And it's the journey, firstly, of, of sin. When we encounter the Scriptures and God, through His Spirit, encounters us through His Word, we see, firstly, that we are sinful, that we have not met the mark, that we've not made the standard of God's holiness and goodness. But then we are led to joy, joy in God's love and care and salvation. And then that leads us to praxis, which is just a practical application of God's love and goodness. Always the scripture leads us to a response. So this is the journey, really, of the scriptures But it's also the journey of our lives, and it's the journey of the gospel. We see when Jesus Christ comes to the world, he comes to forgive sin. And he leads us to great and bountiful joy in his grace, which leads us out to praxis, to application, to God as well. So this is the journey of our lives in faith that scripture kind of exposes and leads us to. So as we're thinking about what is God's will in our life, where is God leading me, what is God doing What journey is God taking me on? I can't see it. We see that he's always, God through his Holy Spirit, always leads us to sin. And then to joy. And then to praxis. So today we're going to study through the ancient uh, community of Israel and Jerusalem. Kind of what that journey looks like. And how that journey looked like in their life as a community. And how it looks like in our lives as a community and as individuals as well. So I see firstly that after reading the scriptures, the first thing that the people of Jerusalem were, were brought, kind of led to was they were led to sin. To an acknowledgement of their sin. And we can see this right in the first verse of our chapter. We see that after the word was read, that or as it was read, the, the leaders of Jerusalem started noticing something they noticed that the people of Jerusalem were crying. And not just one person crying. It was a whole community weeping and crying. And, you know, it could be a bit of a, like uncharacteristic sight. They might think, oh, they might be joyful and happy. The walls are done. Everything's awesome. But they were weeping. And they were mourning. Now, I know sometimes Scripture leads me... To, to weep in joy or in realization. But just imagine all of us, we just read Nehemiah 8 and we're just all weeping and crying. Or just imagine like we're all the churches in New York just start weeping and crying and we're just like, oh. We go, what what kind of provoked that response? And we see it clearly the clue of what invoked that response and it's in that they mourned And were weeping. What were they mourning? What did the scriptures bring up in their life as a community. That led them to mourn like they would someone who has died. Remember they were sitting like listening to the scripture for six hours straight. So, But they weren't mourning the fact that their toes and their feet were tired. And that they were tired of listening to the word. They were mourning their failure. The scripture brought up. Their failure. As they would read through the books of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, they remembered that their people didn't follow God's word. That they were disobedient. That they followed other idols. That they did not love each other. That they, they were reflecting upon this as they would read law after law. Story after story, they were reminded of how much they disobeyed God and dishonored his love, and they ignored God's call. The story of the Old Testament is often the story of God's people missing God. God loves them and cares for them and leads them, and they follow other gods. And they were remembering this as they were, the scripture was being read, so they mourned and they wept. And this is one of the unique ways, the the story kind of shows us one of the unique ways that God's Spirit works through the Scriptures in our lives as well. That when we read the word, the Bible, often our sin and our need is uncovered. It's exposed. William Bridge, who is uh, this Puritan preacher uh, in the 1700s or 1600s, he described it this way. That sin is like a mirror. So the mirror is, is kind of like the way sin is exposed in our life. And so the mirror has kind of three elements to it. The mirror, we can see the glass. You know, the glass is what we look through, and then we see ourselves. Kind of, I look and, you know, there I am. And... <laughs> And we can also see the people around us. I can look out and I see you all in the mirror and you kind of see me um, as well. And so when we think of the mirror as kind of the way sin is exposed in our life, the glass is like God's word. In God's word, we see God's holiness and God's awesomeness and God's might and God's power. We see that he is fully, completely righteous and just. That there is no blemish or stain in him. So when we look at ourselves through the lens of God's word and God's love and God's holiness, we see two things about ourselves. We see firstly that we're made in the image of God. So when we look in the mirror, we see I'm beautiful. I am a beautiful creation of God and I look... And I see also that God has created me a masterpiece. I'm created in the image of God. But also when I look through the, the lens of God's love and holiness, I see that I am also broken. That I am beautiful but broken. I am a tainted masterpiece. I have sinned and fallen away from God. And that is not just an action. That is a disposition. An action is something we can do or not do. So if you think of sin as an action, then you'll constantly be going, okay, I'm just not going to sin. If I don't sin, I'll be perfect. God will love me. Everything's great. But in the scriptures, sin is not spoken of as an action, something that you can do and not do. Sin is spoken of as a disposition. It is who you are. We were sinful at birth. We will be sinful until death. No matter how righteous and perfect you act, you will still have the infection, the disease of sin in you. So when we look at ourselves in the mirror of God's holiness and love, we see that we are made beautifully, and we are also very broken. And then thirdly, when we look at this mirror, we also look out and see everybody else. And we see the same thing about everybody else. I look at you and I say, The same thing that's true of me is true of you. That we are also beautiful. All of you are made in God's image. When I'm looking out on this room, I see a bunch of people who are incredibly loved, fashioned, and formed uh, uniquely by God, made in his image, made with loving care. But then as I look out, I see the same thing I see in myself the disposition of sin. (laughs) That all of us, including myself, when I look in this mirror, I see that we are loved more than we can imagine, but we are also much more capable of sin and evil than we think we are. So given the right circumstance, given the right frustration, given the right opportunity, we will sin more than we even think we will. We are far more capable of sin than we know. And so in thinking about that, that is what the people of Jerusalem were seeing. When they listened to the word, the law just got washed over them. They, they saw this. They saw God's holiness and goodness. They saw their sin and brokenness. And they saw that it wasn't just them who were guilty. It was everyone who was guilty. Everyone was wrong. Everybody is made in God's image. Everyone is infected by sin. And so that made them weep. It made them cry. It made them mourn. It made them even kind of lose hope of going, man, we are messed up. And I think that's something we see. When we allow ourselves to look in the mirror of God's righteousness and holiness, we see, I am more messed up than I realize. And then I look out and I see, you're more messed up than you realize, too. (laughs) We are all together in our messed-upness, in our sinfulness, in our brokenness. But then look at the response that Nehemiah gives them. He doesn't say, yes, you people, you're terrible. No, we get a very different response from him. This is what we get. He says, go enjoy choice food and sweet drinks And send some of those who have nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Isn't that an interesting response? I mean, when we look at sin, often sin just equals bad. Sin bad. You know, and so when we see see sin as just this bad, terrible, evil thing, we avoid it. We can't look at this mirror. We cannot see ourselves... It's maybe easier to see you, I can kind of look to the side and see all of your sin, but it's hard for me to see my sin if I, if I see sin as just terrible and bad. That there's no redemptive uh, ability in sin, then I will avoid this. And then there's an aspect of our sin that even makes it harder to see it, it's shame. Shame is this part of us that just wants to say, you're terrible, you're not worthy, you're bad. You're not good enough. So shame kind of shrouds our sin, even. We can't look at it. We got to avoid it. We got to run from it. We got to hide it away. We can't face it. And so then when we, we think about our sin, we go, oh, I just got to try to be perfect. I got to be better. I can't do it. It's hard to share it with others because it's shameful. It's hard to confess it to ourselves because it's shameful. It makes us feel like we're not enough, that we're not worthy, that God could not love us because of that mirror that we see ourselves in. But the blessing of the scriptures is that God does not do this. We do this. We put this veil of shame over our sin. That sin just, ah, it shows me how terrible I am. God could never love me because of my sin. I must stay away, I can't do it. But God does not do that. In the goodness of God, He just shows us the truth. He doesn't add shame to it. He just shows us who we are. Sin is uh, not the enemy, but it's a catalyst that wakes us up for our need for God, our need for help, and our need for the blessing of grace. So, sin, we see this throughout the scripture that we're called to acknowledge our sin. We're called to say, Yes, we need God. We mess up. We are worse than we know. But that is not does that that does not lead to shame. That leads to reality. That leads to go, yes, this is the way things are. Sin is not the enemy, sin is the reality that we live in. And if we can't face it, if we can't look into it, then we can't grow. We can't grow if we can't look at our sin. And also, we can't love each other if we cannot look at each other's sin and also my own sin. Because if I only see judgment in you but cannot face my own judgment, then I will just judge you but not love you. But if I can look at my sin and go, yes, I am broken, and then I can look and say, yep, you're broken too, then we're now a community of brokenness. We have the same need for God. We have the same hope in Jesus Christ. We have the same blessing of God's grace. His unconditional love given to us. And so this journey of being exposed to sin actually leads to kind of what Nehemiah and the leaders were encouraging the people in Jerusalem to. We see that they encourage him. This day is holy. Do not grieve. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, there's something happening here that is hard for us to see because we're not Jewish and we don't celebrate the Jewish festivals. But this, uh, this time, this uh, story is happening on a festival called Rosh Hashanah. And that is actually happening in the modern Jewish calendar right now. It starts today and it goes till Tuesday. That's why some of our families are not here because they have the weekend off. And they're going on trips because they have a couple days off of school. And, you know, this was not a great feat of planning for, on my part to, like, make sure this passage was on Rosh Hashanah. But once I realized it was, it was pretty cool, a pretty cool connection. Because Rosh Hashanah happens um, basically uh, this year, September 29th, October 2nd. And that was happening in the ancient world thousands of years ago. They were celebrating Rosh Hashanah. And they were mourning their sin. And so Nehemiah tells them, this day is holy. The Lord is your strength. And what he's doing is he's reminding them that even though they're mourning their sin now, there's a beautiful thing coming that they're going to experience beauty and and the beauty of God's love and forgiveness. And that is Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur will happen a week later. So for us, it'll happen October 8th and 9th. And Jewish people have celebrated this again for thousands of years. And so back in Nehemiah's day, Yom Kippur came after Rosh Hashanah as well. And Yom Kippur is a very special kind of central festival in the life of Jewish people. It is called the Day of Atonement. So on that day, every year, in the Jewish tradition, everybody would be forgiven their sins. In the ancient world, the priests would go and bring a spotless lamb in the temple and they would kill it. And the blood of that spotless lamb covered every single person in, in Israel and in Judah. So all of the people then would be covered from their sin. So no matter what the people of Israel did that year, all the idolatry and corruption and everything, no matter what the individuals did that year, covered cleansed it would be a yearly cleansing of sin so it's amazing when we look at the story of the scripture right because there are these little kind of reminders and and signs of what's going to be happening in Jesus Christ and so this is an example of what's happening what's going to happen in a much larger way in Jesus Christ because in the Jewish tradition the day of atonement happened once a year so once a year, everyone could be forgiven, no matter what, just for that day until you sinned again. So once a year for one people. But now, 2,000 years later, on Good Friday, the Day of Atonement happens for all people, for all time, for all sins. Not just one, for all. Not just for one day, for all days. If you, are, if you have come to Jesus Christ and asked for forgiveness... You are fully and completely forgiven through the Day of Atonement, Good Friday. That day, Jesus Christ's blood willingly washed away your sin. So today, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are fully and completely forgiven. When you look at this mirror, you don't have to look in shame because you're forgiven. The day of atonement has happened. So looking at the mirror of your sin doesn't make you want to run away anymore. It actually leads you back home. It leads you back to God's love and his grace. Sin is a calling from God. Come back home. Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. That's why uh, Nehemiah says to them, Enjoy and choice food and sweet drinks. And then the people went away to eat, drink, and to send portions of food to celebrate with great joy. Because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. So they finally got it. And what did it lead them to do? It led them to celebrate. When they got the word, it led them from sin to celebration. It led them to joy. The word joy is used three times in this passage. And it describes the outcome or what happened in the journey of the people of Israel and Jerusalem once they understood God's word. And that's our blessing as well. Joy is kind of what happens to the Christian once they are saved. Once the day of atonement happens to us, the response is joy. The problem is though... I know that many of us probably don't feel too joyful. I mean, when we look at that mirror, there is no shame, but there is joy. But I know that for many of us, we probably don't feel too joyful right now. You might have had a hard week, you might have gone through some trials and struggles, you might be dealing with some issues in your life, and that doesn't lead often to joy. You might be frustrated with someone. You might have some issues with someone in this room. That often doesn't lead to joy. That feeling of joy is often, we think of it as a feeling of excitement or happiness. Those things do not lead to joy. But still, Billy Sunday, a great revivalist in the 1800s, he wrote this. If you have no joy, there is a leak in your Christianity somewhere. I love that. Just think about that for a second. If you have no joy, there is a leak in your Christianity somewhere. There is something in your faith that you don't understand or you forgot if there's no joy. Even in the midst of the struggles, even in the midst of the strife, even in the midst of the worries or the frustrations or whatever you're dealing with, if you have no joy, there's a leak in your Christianity somewhere. And I can see that in my life. Even yesterday I was dealing with some frustration and I was reminded God is good. And I just had to say that. God is good. God is good. God is good. I don't even know how many times I said it yesterday. Maybe maybe a (laughs) hundred. I just kept saying it because I needed to remember that no matter what is going on there is joy because God is good. Often The currency of modern world is not joy, but cynicism, right? And cynicism is this this judgment towards the world and judgment towards each other. It is a lack of hope and foundation. But in the scriptures, it's interesting because you don't read anything about cynicism. God doesn't say, come all ye cynics and please into my kingdom. The cynics are the ones who don't get it in the Bible. But the ones who do get it are the joyful. We see this throughout the New Testament. Jesus says, come and make my joy complete. Paul says, come and be joyful. Peter says, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. And in those passages, and the passages in Nehemiah, joy is not about feeling. But joy is about God. The word joy in Greek is Cairo. And the root word of that word is charis, which is grace. So the word joy, kairo, means to appreciate and acknowledge grace. So that's a different way to look at joy. From now on, I encourage you when you hear be joyful in the scriptures, see it as this, because that's what the word means. It doesn't mean. Be happy, never have any problems, always have a smile on your face because you're Christians. No, it means acknowledge and appreciate grace. And how do we do that? Nehemiah tells his people, be still for this is a holy day, do not grieve. So what does he call them to do? Nothing. He doesn't call them to do anything. He just says, be still, just sit with it. Just love it. Just remember God and what he's done for you. That's how you receive it. You don't have to do anything to earn it. You don't have to do anything to be more spiritual or more joyful or more, you know, more Christian. You just have to receive it. That's what we're called to do. And when we start to receive it, then it begins to change our perspective. Again, if you wonder kind of, How do I live the Christian life? If you wonder, what does God want me to do? If you wonder where God is leading me, God is leading you to live in joy. Very simple. God is leading you, God is leading me to live in joy. And when we live in joy, it actually overflows into our lives. It overflows into praxis. So now we're back at the the third part. From... Exposing our sin, the scripture leads us to joy, and then it leads us to praxis. Just a very applicable, practical response. And we see this in the life of the Jerusalemites in a very practical way. Nehemiah says to them, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. So right away, Nehemiah says that joy reaches out to those who are in need. That if you're joyful, if you appreciate God's grace, it will kind of lead you to those who need that grace. So right away, in this kind of special celebration that was happening on Rosh Hashanah, they say, part of joy is just giving out, giving extra, giving what you have. Surely Nehemiah would have known that they had read Deuteronomy, where God says in Deuteronomy to love the poor, to love the widow, to love the outcast, to love the alien in the country, to love the orphan. So this then was a response to the commandment. They did what was commanded because they were joyful. And that's really our challenge as well. We see that they did this in many ways. They slept in booths, which probably makes no sense to most of us. But basically that is a way of responding to God. They remembered that their people used to live in tents when they were out in the wilderness. So let's do that as well to remember God. And then it says in the scripture that they went out and they shared the word of God with everybody. So they were evangelistic, sharing the word of God. They were loving their neighbor, they were applying it to their lives, and they were sharing the word of God with others. And those are just the simple ways that joy leads us out to others. That joy overflows in our life to others. And if you don't feel like you are very joyful, and you don't feel like you're serving in those ways, this scripture is not giving us a guilt trip. But what it is telling us is if we don't want to serve others, if we have no sense of desire to care for those in need around us, if we do not want to share the word with other people and have no desire to do that, if we do not want to grow in our faith in any way, shape, or form, then what we're called to do is simply to go back to the scriptures and remember joy. Something is leaking in our Christianity because we're missing joy. And we're simply called just to go back To remember who God is in your life. To remember who you are because of God. To remember God's love for you and what he has done for you. Richard Foster describes it in this way. He says, joy, not grit, is the hallmark of holy obedience. We need to be lighthearted in what we do to avoid taking ourselves too seriously. Joy is a cheerful revolt against self and pride. Isn't that an interesting way to see Uh, obedience. We often see obedience as grit. I just got to do it. Just got to make it. Just got to keep going. But Foster is saying that it's actually joy that keeps us going. It's that sense of grace, of acknowledging God's grace, of living it, seeking it, knowing our sin, knowing God's grace, and then just going out with it. So if you are struggling being obedient in some way, If you are struggling walking the path, if you are struggling loving others, you feel like you're plateaued, you're doubting, you're worried, whatever it might be, just go back to God. Remember joy. It's there for you. It is there for me. Whether I acknowledge it or not, we are a joyful people. Whether we as a church acknowledge it or not, we are a joyful people. This is a celebration. Because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. So I encourage you just simply to reflect upon your sin. Look in the mirror. Don't be afraid of it. Reflect upon your sin. And then celebrate in joy. And then go out in praxis. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, thank you. That the journey that you take us on is a good journey. And it's a journey that is circular. It happens over and over and over again. We are led from sin to joy to praxis and then back to sin. Because <laughs> praxis is hard. And it leads us back to, we, and then we're back to our knees. And then we're back to jumping in celebration. And then we're back to praxis. We're back to our knees again. Lord God, help us understand the good journey that you have us on. Often we don't see where we're going, Lord. We don't see the purpose we come to church, we're in Bible studies, we try to read your word, we try to follow your way, and we don't know where we're going. Help us to know the journey you have us on. That you have us going from sin to joy to praxis over and over again as we go closer and closer to your love and realize who you've made us to be through your son Jesus Christ. Thank you, God. In your son's name we pray. Amen.